My Father, you reign in our Christ. You reign in glory. You stand over your creation. You rule over every aspect of that which you have made, directing it towards your eternal purpose to glorify yourself in Christ. We think of your reigning now, even as we see your control over the weather, Stephen, recently and the destruction that has come to so many in Florida, some in South Carolina and Georgia. We ask that you would strengthen those who are there helping. May they come with that message of happiness that we just sang about as they serve so many who don't know you. May they see the reality of Christ in their life and may you open up many doors for the gospel. And may they embrace that message that you do reign even in the loss of so much that you stand supreme and can be trusted. And Father, may we embrace that as well in our own lives, that you reign and you give us instructions. You command us, you ordain the circumstances of our lives and you teach us how to glorify you in them. And sometimes these instructions are hard. Sometimes the circumstances are difficult. Sometimes they're easy. But in all of them, we have your grace by the Holy Spirit indwelling us as your people through Christ who is our life by your eternal plan and your calling. The hope of our salvation and the power to live in light of that hope for your glory. Enable us, teach us, and enable us to live that out even as we look at this passage in First Peter this morning. So we commit ourselves to you and we ask for this grace in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll be making your way, if you will, to First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20 this morning. Let me begin with this, that the Declaration of Independence contains these words. Words that you're very familiar with, let me remind you of them. These were, of course, at the beginning, and not the very beginning, but in the opening paragraphs. There are these, these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words define really in many ways what it means to be an American, what it means to have an American ideal, an American mindset. And that in and of itself is a true statement. And as a principle of government, it is right, it is honorable, it is even necessary for a government that would cause human flourishing and human advancement. These truths should be championed and defended, and we, in fact, are sitting here today because we enjoy the privileges of them. We enjoy the fruits of that kind of principled government designed to protect our freedoms in a way that we might flourish and have life and liberty and happiness. However, while reflective of biblical truth, We've often taken this, particularly as American Christians, and justified it and made it the ultimate guiding principle of life, a fundamental principle that cannot at all costs ever be violated without our rebellion, without our revolution, without our scorn, without the harshest response from us. Even Christians act very often as though their personal rights were God's ultimate concern for them, that they never be treated unfairly that they never be treated unjustly, that they never be in a circumstance where they don't receive everything uh, that's coming to them. 
We act sometimes as if that were God's greatest concern. That is to think more as an American, however, than it is to think as a Christian, as a saint, as a child of God. Certainly, justice is something to be fought for. Certainly, there is a right to receive justice. Certainly, we do have certain rights that are endowed upon us by our Creator. That, that is true. We are, each of us, made in the image of God, and we have that. But God desires something more than our rights. He's more concerned about something more than our freedoms never be violated. And namely, it is this, His glory. His glory. Let me just remind you of one passage. Don't turn there, and I'm not going to go through it. I'm just going to mention it to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing to a group of Christians who, at least in one of their many issues that they were dealing with, one was dragging one another, other Christians, before courts, before law courts, because they were pursuing their rights. They were determined not to be offended without exacting the vengeance of the laws that were they're just due to them. And that makes total sense to us, again, as Americans. But listen to God's wisdom through the Apostle Paul. He says this. He says, I say this to your shame, that there is not among you one wise man who is able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. In verse 7, actually then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Now, here's a statement that's going to go against every fiber of our being, again, as an American citizen who is immersed in our culture. He says this, Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, why not rather lay aside your rights for the greater purpose of the testimony of Jesus Christ before the watching world? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather receive injustice so that the testimony of Christ would not be dishonored? Now, at the end of the chapter, interestingly, he grounds that in the fact that all things, or earlier in chapter 3, in the fact that all things already belong to us as God's children. We don't need to fight for them. God distributes and governs what he has given to us for his own glory and his own purposes. But the point is this, that we must understand that God's ultimate concern for us is not our rights, is not that we receive justice, though he does care about those things. It is that we become holy. It is his greatest concern that we have a witness of Christ and of the gospel to the world that shows to be grounded in a hope that is beyond this world. To be grounded in truths that supersede, that exceed our own personal rights. He desires more than anything that we be conformed to the image of His Son. And if I, or if you would remember, as you do, the image of His Son who gave up His rights to leave the privileges and the honor and the glory that He had in heaven to come and take the form of a servant, of a slave... And be obedient to the point of death, even death, the shameful death of a cross. That's whose image we're being conformed to. The one who gave up his rights to suffer for us, to bear the penalty for our sin, and to rise from the dead for us. So, the point that Peter is getting at here 
If we were to summarize this passage, at least the the general principle of it, we could say this, that Christians adorn the gospel when we humbly submit to unrighteous authority. To authority in general, yes, he's going to address that. But even to that authority that violates at times our rights. That violates things that are due us and that we should receive from others. Now, we're just going to consider this in three broad headings. And we'll spend the most time on the first one. Namely this. I'll mention them to you now and then we'll talk about I'll mention them later. The first is this, that God's command to Christians towards human authority in general. God's command to Christians to human authority in general. Secondly, the Christian perspective on being under unrighteous authority, being in circumstances in which we have to endure authority over us that is ungodly. What is the right perspective on that? And third, the Christian motivation for humble submission to unrighteous authority. So those are three broad categories that we'll look at. Let me begin by reading the passage, and then we'll look at it. Uh, Beginning in verse 18, verses 18 through 20 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God... A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Look at verse 18, just that first part there. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Be submissive to your masters with all respect. You could be a little more literal if you wanted to and say, Servants, be submissive or obedient in all fear to those who are your masters. Who is he referring to here? Well, you have the translation servants, but actually it would be better to translate that as household slaves. Household slaves. He uses here the term for masters that speaks of a lord, one who exercises ownership, one who exercises full rights, a sense of mastery, if you will, over another. The term servant here, household servant, comes from a root, which is house, and he's referring to those who actually have responsibilities in the house of their master, therefore a household slave, a household slave. That's what he's referring to here. He doesn't use the typical word for slave, doulos. He is softening that a bit. But he is identifying here a class within those who were slaves. And maybe you could say not only a class, but those who had a particular identity with their responsibility as slaves as those who were part of a family household. Those who were a part of the inner workings and the life and the dynamic of the household of the master. So he's, he's still referring to here to slaves, those who were in the condition of slavery but worked inside or had their responsibilities inside the, the house of the master. And that's important to note because, as we've said before, there is a distinction between a slave and between a servant. And that most essential distinction is this, that a servant had a certain measure of rights, a certain identity within the legal system, within the law of personhood, 
certain defensible rights, whereas a slave had none. They had none. One ancient philosopher referred to slaves merely as tools, a kind of tool, a thinking tool, actually. So they, they were, in one sense, legally speaking, non-persons, non-persons. And so that's who he's addressing here, household slaves, household slaves. Now, to give an idea here, I want to just very briefly set a, a very large context of slavery and, and those to whom he's uh, addressing these discussions. First, let me just note slavery within the Roman Empire was, was different in some respects to what we think about historically as Americans, American kind of slavery. Now, you, some of you might be familiar with that. But we have, a, we have a tendency sometimes when we think of slavery to think of our historical context and impose that back on those whom he was speaking to. And then there were some distinctions. For example, a slave in Rome, most often, or most of the slaves in Rome, were slaves because they were captives of war. There were other reasons somebody could be a slave. It was they were a son or daughter of a slave. They could have just been bought uh, by a particular family. Uh, of course, they are captive of war, and there were other reasons. But slavery, the main point of slavery in Rome, was not directly related to race. Whereas, of course, for us, if you were black, if you were brought over in those conditions, then that was a mark of your slavery. There weren't white slaves. But that wasn't the case in Rome. There were all different nationalities who were in this condition of slavery. All another difference is that in Roman society, slaves would often receive an education. They would learn skills and achieve positions of honor. They were doctors, lawyers, teachers, tutors, musicians, accountants, and took a variety of roles of what we would sometimes call white-collar jobs. They were highly educated, and sometimes they were more educated than their owners and their masters. And they had more skills than their owners and their masters. And sometimes even their ability to earn wealth made them more wealthy than their owners or their masters. So they could even rise to positions of honor within Roman government. As a matter of fact, Felix in Acts 24, the Felix whom Paul was brought uh, before, the Roman governor of Judea, was in fact first a slave. He was a slave who had gained his freedom and then risen through the ranks of Roman government and attained the position that the Apostle Paul was actually brought before him and he became, a, or he was, a Roman governor. As I mentioned earlier, slaves within Rome could also earn money, at times becoming quite wealthy. And this ability to earn money made them made the option of what within Roman law was called manumission, and it was an option that enabled that slave to purchase their freedom. And when a slave purchased their freedom and became a freedman, they actually, also what came with that was a Roman citizenship. They could purchase not only their freedom, but also a Roman citizenship, which actually gave them a higher status than somebody who was born as a freeman. There could be a freeman who was born to free, a free person, but actually did not have Roman citizenship. So it was, it, was a very different, it was a very different system. However, while Roman slavery was different than American slavery in these respects, there are also some strong similarities. One is this. Even though some could win their freedom eventually, and even though some rose to greater stations in life, 
the time period in between their slavery and their freedom was met with a variety of abuses. Before that time, they were still those ones who were considered tools. They were legally not considered to have these personal rights. And they suffered unimaginable abuses at the hands of their masters. Beatings, rape, all kinds of shameful and ignoble treatments by those who were over them. That was very often the case. Number two, they were still slaves. And they were legal considered, legally considered, as I said, little more than property or tools. And their desire and their will was to be completely, absolutely submitted to that of their master. The master could do whatever they desired to do. And there were no repercussions on the, hand, on the part of the slave in general. There's exceptions, but in general. There were no repercussions on the part of the slave. There was no defense that they had. So it was a terrible situation. As a matter of fact, one, and I'll just mention this, in Luke 17 gives an example of this. He says, Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. Afterwards you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did these things which were commanded, does he? Now that actually is a parallel then of our own response to our service to Christ. It doesn't earn us merit. It is merely what is required of us as those who belong to our Lord and Master. But the point there that I'm illustrating is merely this. That that will of that slave was completely under the will of the Master. They were to do what they were told to do. They weren't to receive thanks for that. That was their station in life. And so even in the best of circumstances, slavery was never a desirable situation and it was to be changed if at all possible. I'll mention this passage later, but Paul gives instructions to slaves in 1 Corinthians 7. He said, were you called, verse 21, while a slave, do not worry about it, but if you are able also to become free, rather do that. In other words, that is a, it is a condition that he's not commanding that uh, you rebel against, but that if you can rightfully be freed from it, then you should do so. Why? Because it's a terrible situation. It was terrible. Even though the end could be good for some, it was a terrible situation to be in. And yet, it was a common situation for many. Slaves made up a large portion of Roman society. It's been estimated that there were 60 million slaves in the first century in Rome. It was a major major part of their industry, their culture, their uh, economy... It was an important part of Roman society. And consequently, as the gospel began to spread through the, in the first century, as the gospel began to spread out through the empire of Rome, many of those getting saved were, in fact, slaves. Many of them were slaves. So there were many Christians who were in the category of slavery in the early church. And those are who Paul is, Peter is addressing here. And the New Testament actually has much to say to slaves. God gives instructions on believing slaves to their masters, such as here. He gives instructions to believing masters towards their slaves, and particularly believing slaves. He even gives instructions to a master of a runaway slave who became a believer. In other words, it's simply a part of the world and the life and the context of the New Testament, the idea of slavery. 
And in fact, interestingly, the prevalence of slavery produced a variety of interesting situations. For example, in the early church, you could have a slave who was a slave to a master, and they both attended the same church. And the slave actually would hold the position of an elder and hold spiritual authority within the church and exercise that spiritual authority and the gift of teaching and decision-making and so forth for the church, while outside of the church he was submitted and owned by the master, a slave. So it was a very interesting situation, and you can imagine came with all kinds of complexities in the life of those who found themselves in it. Now, a question that often comes, and I'm just going to make this as a point, is why didn't, why didn't the New Testament, or why didn't the writers of Scripture, and that fact, why didn't God, who gave His Word, why didn't He give instructions to abolish that evil system? Why didn't He command the church to rid the scourge of slavery from the Roman Empire? Why did he not condemn the practice of slavery? And search as you may, you will never find it condemned. You will simply give, find instructions to those who are in it. Their responsibility of how to live in that condition. Never an imperative to get out of it. Let me answer that question with someone else who I think handled this well. Tom Shiner says this again we must remember that New Testament documents address readers in the situation in which they live railing against slavery would not have been of any help to ordinary Christians for as noted the dissolution of slavery was out of the question furthermore New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries they did not believe that overhauling social structure would transform culture Their concern was the relationship of individuals to God, and they focused on the sin and rebellion of the individuals against their Creator. If enough individuals are transformed, of course, society as a whole benefits, and the Christian faith begins to function as a leavening influence. In other words, it is not by revolution that culture was going to change. It was by the character of transformed lives and believers that would transform society, transform laws, and therefore ultimately transform the institution of slavery, which is precisely what happened in the Roman Empire with not only slavery but many other things over time. It was the testimony of Christians in those conditions that ultimately wielded the greatest influence on the Roman Empire and for the gospel. Now, there are times, there's a footnote here, in which Christians should take political action. We can think of William Wilberforce in England and many in America who took action politically through the system to abolish slavery. But that was never the command of individual Christians. Never command of individual Christians. And that kind of change, and this is important, cannot bring the most necessary and fundamental change that is necessary, which is repentant faith in the gospel. Now, we noted last week that law does not affect the human heart, and all all law does is regulate sin. It sets parameters around it. It It tries to hem it in. But it cannot change the human heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that through the gospel. And so the New Testament gives instructions to the church and focuses on the the most fundamental reality of man's relationship to God and how we are to live for him in this world. And this is going somewhere. 
Political systems come and go. Christians find themselves in a variety of, under a variety of government and civil authority, both good and bad, both promoting justice and sanctioning injustice. Christians find themselves in a variety of those kind of situations. But man's situation before God never changes. It's always the same. And so it is the gospel and the fruit that it bears in human hearts that is the most fundamental means of the gospel wielding its transforming power on a society and ridding that society of the kinds of evils that it sanctions and legislates. One of the consequences of Christianity under the influence of the gospel was the eradication of slavery, but it was through the transformation of the individual Christian. Why do I mention all of that? One is for a context and to understand that's what Peter is addressing here. That's what he's addressing here. If he's not supporting revolution, if he's not saying, you who are household slaves, get out of that wicked situation, it is unrighteous, it is ungodly, it is not his ultimate plan, therefore rebel, run away, get away from your masters, you are a free person in Christ. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. What he does is he gives instructions to these household slaves, these slaves, on how to live under the authority of, in this case, an unbelieving master. And these are most certainly unbelieving masters, both by the terms he uses and, and the instructions he gives. So these are unbelieving masters. And so essentially what he's addressing then for, for them and for us is how are you to show Christ to those God has placed over you by authority that he has given to them? Whether it be authority here of a master to a slave, whether it be an authority that you endure as an employee in the workplace or any other sphere of life, how are you to demonstrate Christian character? And so this is what he says. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. With all respect. It's Christian character in submission to that authority that will wield the greatest influence. That is how we glorify God. As I mentioned earlier, this uh, here translated uh, as respect is phobos, the word is, you know, you know that meaning fear. It could be reverence, it could be respect, it could be honor. There's different ways that you can take that. Sometimes it does mean actual fear. It has in reference to God most commonly that idea of a reverent respect. It includes the idea of the fear of discipline and punishment, but the heart of it is a reverent respect for God, His glory, His honor, His authority, His majesty, Him who is God, Him who is creator, Him who is ruler over all things. Now, this fear here could be taken in two different ways. It could, and both of them are reasonable and both of them are grammatical I mention it to them because these different ways will be reflected in your translations. It could be taken as meaning you are to conduct yourselves in fear as in fearing your masters, reverently obeying your masters and showing them that kind of respect. Or it could mean fear directly related to God. In other words, you are to fear God in, this, in your servant-master relationship and therefore reflect that in how you submit to them and submit to their authority over you. Now, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter in terms of application because one contains the other. 
Each one requires the other. In other words, when you fear God, that fear of God will demonstrate itself in how you honor and respect and submit and serve to the one over you in human authority. And if you fear the one who is over you and honor them and respect them in human authority, it is motivated and because you fear God. You see, so they're both interconnected. They're both interconnected. And and both ideas ultimately are contained here. A proper fear of God will lead to an attitude of respect and honor and submission to those God has placed over you. That's the idea. So what then does this look like? What does that kind of fear look like? Well, it means... one, as we already said, that we're not to conduct ourselves with an attitude of contempt towards those over us, an attitude of any hint of rebellion or dishonesty or disobedience. But it means this, the heart of that is this, is that Christians are to conduct themselves under any authority in which God has placed them, be it in the workplace or some other sphere, with an attitude of honor and with integrity. It is to be submissive with integrity. Now let me just tease that out just a little bit more. And I'm of course going to have to go quickly here. But in Ephesians chapter 6, let me just mention a couple verses. You don't have to turn there. In Ephesians chapter 6, there's similar instructions that Peter or excuse me Paul is giving to the church at Ephesus here. And he says this, Ephesians chapter 6, Slaves, verse 5, Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So the same thing, we read it this morning in verse 22 of Colossians 3. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So what God is getting at is this. He's not merely saying... If you are a slave or if you are an employee or you are someone who finds yourself under human authority in some sphere of life, he's not merely saying this, do what you're told. Be obedient. Don't be a rebel rouser. Don't be against the rules. He's not saying less than that, but he's saying so much more than that. So much more than that. He's taking it down much further than the mere consequence of our actions fear addresses the hard attitude and the motive you can have an external show of respect while harboring resentment in your heart harboring malice in your heart harboring anger in your heart even a sense of hoped vengeance towards that person in the heart So by saying to address yourself in fear, God is addressing the hard attitude and the motive, not merely the external actions. God never is concerned merely with the outside. We see here then the 
the significance of understanding God's word. Listen, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You see, Scripture takes off the mask, as it were, takes off that superficial crust and that superficial layer, as it were, and never lets us get away with half-hearted obedience, superficial obedience, mere externals. So he's addressing here the heart. God is supremely concerned with our motive, our inner thoughts, our intentions, and our attitude. And so the question really that's laid before these slaves, these these household slaves in the, and before us, is this. Are you, in your situation, willing to adjust your thinking and your attitude to the will of God? Rather than the influence of the world, rather than the influence of your own fleshly desires, but are you willing to submit them and live consistent with the will of God? This is reflective of whether we have an earthly mindset or a God-centered and a Christ-centered world view. Do you view your situation under his providence as a means in which you are to reflect his honor, in which his commands are at the forefront of your minds and your circumstances and responsibility, or according to your own thoughts and interest? So this is a matter then, he's saying to us, of our heart attitude toward God and our circumstances. Now, again, the close parallel connection for us in our situation would be that of an employer-employee kind of relationship. But the idea here, why I didn't say Christians in work as I originally intended to do, is because the idea is really broader than that. It's, it's submission to human authority in all its vicissitudes, in all of its ways, in all the, the situations in which it's worked out and we find ourselves under. It could be under another person. It could be under an organization. It could be whatever. And our attitude is to be marked by honoring Respecting and being uncontentious in our attitude towards this authority. It should be without grumbling and complaining. Do you grumble and complain about authority at your work? Are you equally as a Christian? Am I, for that matter? Am I indistinguishable or are you indistinguishable from the others in your workplace who like to gather around in little enclaves or next to the water fountain or wherever it might be at the lunch table and grumble and complain and express constant discontent with your circumstances, that would be the opposite of what he's saying here. We would not be a testimony for Christ then, but we would in fact be a witness against our profession. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now get the connection there. Don't be grumbling and complaining acknowledging that you live in a crooked and perverse generation. But the response of a believer is not to be grumbling and complaining But we are to appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain and toil in vain. In other words, because your faith will be shown as being genuine, as being true. 
And so how are we to honor God in these circumstances? It is to be or have a willing, uncomplaining, uncontentious attitude towards the authority that is set over us. Now, as with our relationship to civil authority, this doesn't mean that we cannot use legitimate means and channels for proper complaint or to address wrong and so forth. Peter is addressing here again the attitude and the posture of our heart. Now, at this point, some will surely want to argue and say and bring up this point. What about those who are unfair? What about those who are unjust? What about those who are unkind? What are those who are about those who are simply jerks and hard to be around? What about those? Surely you don't mean my boss. What about those who wrongly abuse, use and abuse their authority? Am I not to stand up and demand my rights? Well, the answer to that, Peter tells us, is that our Christian testimony and our Christian reality is in the answer, no, no. You're actually not supposed to do that. Again, we're not talking about legitimate ways and means and uses to change situations. We're talking about the attitude that's displayed towards those in authority. And the answer is, what about those who are unjust to me? His is, submit and honor them. Look at what he says again in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. The ESV has unjust. The Holman Christian Standard has cruel. This statement is, in fact, the crux issue of the entire passage and really this entire section and really could argue in terms of application the entire epistle. Now, the foundation of this he's going to get to next in verses 21 through 24, the example of Christ. But, but here is the situation and the command laid down to believers in an unjust world being treated unjustly. We are to honor them. Look at what he says. Not only to those who are good and gentle. Now, this is where God's providence has placed some of us under authority that is good and gentle. The idea of good is is that of which is of a high standard, useful, wholesome, gentle, is the idea of, uh, of not insisting on every right of letter, of law, or custom, yielding, gentle, kind, courteous. It has the idea of a sweet reasonableness to it. This describes the ideal person to hold authority. In contrast to what Jesus described of usual Gentile rulers and such, is that they like to lord it over us. These are the kind of People who hold authority and they're understanding, they're kind, they're respectful, they're considerate. They are employers who exert an authority, authority that is reasonable and easy to bear. And sometimes we've had that and some of you may have that now. And we praise God for it. And we thank God for putting us in such a pleasant and a peaceable situation that makes this kind of obedience, frankly, rather easy and not difficult. But in terms of our witness and submission to Christ, this kind of obedience to those who are good and gentle is no mark of spiritual life and is no real mark of spiritual maturity and is no real testimony actually to the witness of the gospel. Listen to the words of Jesus that you well remember. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Four, 
If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? In other words, to be an obedient, respectful employee to a good and an honest and an honorable master, one in authority, is something that even the most deplorable of culture and society would do. A gang member or a criminal would have that same kind of attitude towards those who are good to them, who are honoring to them. It's no mark of spirituality or life when we patiently, when we patiently endure those who are good. There's not much patience or endurance required. And it's no mark of spirituality when we endure the discipline or difficulties that come from our own kind of sin and disobedience. He says that in verse 20. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? If you're a slave in this context, if you're beat for doing wrong and you receive beatings and you patiently endure it, that's no super spiritual saint. You did wrong. You're getting the consequences of your wrong. He mentioned that in passage earlier. So there's no mark of spirituality. That kind of submission for the Christian is a necessary mark of true repentance. A mark of true repentance is that you accept the consequences of it without complaint. As David said, you're justified, you're blameless when you judge. He didn't complain against the consequences, which in his case were lifelong. He got what he deserved. And so we as Christians aren't any special mark of spirituality when we patiently endure what we deserve. However, it is a completely different nature when the one who has authority over us is unjust, unkind, unreasonable, harsh, and lacks any concern or understanding. And it's precisely these that Peter, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that we need to honor them. We need to honor them. What he says, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. He uses the strongest kind of language here to make a contrast if you were to if i were to kind of demonstrate that verbally it'd be like not only to those who are good and gentle but also to those who are unreasonable also to those who are unreasonable and this is a striking term scolios you might be familiar with that it's translated again as i mentioned earlier unjust by the esv cruel by the home and home and christian standard if you have a KJV or some older version, it's translated as froward. Does any of you know what froward means? I don't know what froward means. I had to look it up. It means this, difficult to deal with and contrary. Difficult to deal with and contrary. I think many would say that describes probably the ones who are over them, the bosses that are over them. It has the idea of the word itself, that of being curved or crooked. When it pertains to something morally, it means twisted, crooked, unscrupulous, and dishonest. And that's the latter meaning is intended here. This is the one who does not mind being underhanded towards you, deceitful towards you, immoral for their own selfish ends. And it's even one describing, as he does Later, again in verse 20, who doesn't mind you suffering even though you do good and your suffering is caused by their own hand. But even if you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it. 
So this is the kind of master, the kind of authority that's not only unrighteous for their own ends, but even to the degree that they would allow you to suffer because of their own actions, either directly or indirectly. It would, in a sense, be like those who repay good with evil. And again, this isn't a new situation. Uh, Let me just read to you one. Passage Psalm 109. This is David complaining to the Lord. He says, In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. And thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. That's the lot of believers at times. And it can have direct, of course, application in the workplace. And so what he's calling for here is not some kind of special Christian character that has to do with work. He's identifying here the kind of regenerate character that should mark all believers in union with Christ. And he's simply saying this is how it's displayed in this situation when you have an unrighteous authority over you, person in authority over you. As a matter of fact, if you look in the middle of verse 19, if you have the New American Standard, it says, if a person bears up under. Uh, that, that word there could be translated as someone or anyone. In other words, not only a slave, but anyone who finds themselves in this kind of situation. You are never to have an attitude of personal vengeance. Never. He broadens this in chapter 3. He says, to sum up all All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Can you think of anything that more fundamentally contradicts our flesh and our natural response? I can't. If I'm wronged in my flesh... The most fundamental thing I want to do is respond with vengeance. I want to return their evil for evil. I want to attack them. I want to make them pay. But that's of the flesh. That's not of the spirit. That's not what the spirit produces. That's what our fallen natural tendency produces in us. Those things that ultimately lead to death. And destruction. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12. He says this, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What is a spiritual response when you are at the hands of injustice and unrighteousness, particularly when it's someone over you in authority? So think of your boss, again, would be one of the most obvious parallels here. What is the response? Anger, vengeance, retaliation, or I wonder how I could do them good. I wonder how I could be a blessing to them. To demonstrate that my hope is greater than their evil against me. That my hope is in Christ. That I understand God brought this about and it's wrong. And it's hard to bear. And it is unjust. 
But my response is to overcome what they've done with for evil and to overcome it with good. The good that the Holy Spirit produces in me. The good that I have received from Christ, even though I too sinned against Him. Let me give you an illustration of this. Borrowed from a guy named Edmund Clowney. He says this. He says, And I thank God that He has given me the love to seek to convert and to adopt as my son the enemy who killed my dear boys. These are the words of Korean pastor Yang Wan Sun. The year was 1948. The place was the town of Sunchun near the 38th parallel. A band of communists had taken control of the town for a brief period and had executed Pastor Sun's two older boys, Matthew and John. They died as martyrs, calling on their persecutors to have faith in Jesus. When the communists were driven out, Chai Sun, a young man of the village, was identified as the one who had fired the murderous shots. His execution was ordered. Pastor Sun requested that the charges be dropped and that Chai Sun be released into his custody for adoption. Rachel, the 13-year-old sister of the murdered boys, testified to support her father, father's incredible request. Only then did the court agree to release Chai Sun. And he, meaning Chai Sun, became the son of the pastor and later a believer in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's talking about here. This is God's command to us. And this is only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. This cannot be done in your flesh. This cannot be done by an unbeliever and certainly not for the motive of glorifying Christ. This cannot be done by a matter of your will. It cannot be done by a matter of you simply determining to do it. It can only be done by those who have experienced the true grace of Jesus Christ and are under control of the Holy Spirit in obedience to Him. That's the only way we can do this. Put yourself in that situation as a slave or whatever situation you're in. And imagine what is being required. They could be beaten put out, food withheld, separated from family, any manner of injustice. And the command here is to do good, to keep doing good. And let me make one other point with this. The Christian perspective then on our unjust circumstances needs to be God-centered. Why would God allow or want me to be in such a difficult situation, we might ask, Isn't it wrong and foolish to stay and put up with a situation in which I'm unjustly treated by someone in authority over me? Sometimes it may be, but sometimes we don't have the choice. We don't have a plan B. We don't have an option B. Sometimes we do. As Paul said to slaves, if you can be free, then pursue that. That's a good thing to do. But guess what? Most slaves didn't have that opportunity. Not all of them were able to earn money. Not all of them were educated. Not all of them had the the opportunity to buy their freedom and to rise through the ranks. Now, this is exactly the opposite of what many are sold as Christianity. That God would never purposely bring something unjust or unfair into your life. Some believe that God would never, never allow you to be treated unjustly as a part of his purpose and his plan for you. He would never allow you to be lied against, treated wrongly, cheated, maligned, unfairly. That's how many Christians think. God certainly couldn't be the one behind my difficult circumstances. 
And that's why it's necessary just to, to, to briefly here stop and understand what is behind, the, what, what is it that allows us to do this? There's a larger issue going on here and a more fundamental principle undergirding this command. And it's essential to understand it and to embrace it. And the larger principle is this. God uses trials and difficult circumstances to conform us to the image of Christ, to share in His holiness, and to share in His joy. God uses these kind of things. He said earlier in 1 Corinthians 7, we won't turn there, were you called while a slave? Then honor God in your slavery, realizing that you're Christ's free man. Were you called while a free man? Well, honor Christ in your freedom by realizing that you're a slave of Christ. In other words, what marks your identity and self-perception of your situation is not merely the external injustices, but who you are identified in Christ. If you're in a good situation, you're a slave of Christ. Honor Him. If you were a slave in this situation, you are free in Christ. Use that freedom to honor Him. And here it means by submitting to that which is unrighteous without resentment or rebellion. Knowing that God is sovereign over your experience of injustice. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 21. After he says, you know, if you patiently endure difficulties, he says, you have been called for this purpose. You have been called for this purpose. This isn't an accident. This isn't something that caught God by surprise. This isn't something he's unaware of that he's in heaven trying to think about how to get you out of it because it's so unfair. It's something God ordained to say, in this circumstance, I am molding you to the image of Christ. That's the example he's going to give. And I am teaching you to trust me and to obey me. I'm teaching you to put away your sin I'm exposing the temptations of your own flesh of anger and retaliation. And I am helping you by these circumstances to bring your will, your life, your soul, and submission to me. Even as Christ did. Hebrews chapter 5. Although he was a son, verse 8, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience to the things which he suffered. To those who were experiencing the wrath of a, of a culture that was actually taking their property away, putting some of them to death, putting some of them in prison, breaking up families, treating them with hostility all because of their testimony in Christ. What is the instruction that God gives to them? Revolt? Rebel? Hate? No, he says, realize that God is the one doing this. He says in Hebrews 12, 9, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, earthly fathers, for a short time as seen best to them. In other words, it wasn't perfect, but they were trying to do their best as a father. But he, God, disciplines us for our own good so that we may share in his holiness all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful and yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now it's possible to be in that situation and not be trained by it, right? To rebel, to grumble, 
to complain, to go through a trial, to be in this unjust situation, and to come out of it only bitter and angry, doubting, unbelieving, with a testimony that's in shambles. Or, it is possible to be in that situation to deal with your own sin. Remember, the head of the situation is to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. To seek to honor Christ in it and to be trained by it. Why does that training produce? Sharing in His holiness. The joy of righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit and of true Christian virtue. So God has called His people to be patient, recognizing that He has brought about this situation in order to conform you to the image of Christ. Listen to what He says just briefly to the church at Philippi. He says this, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Could you imagine that? He's telling those who are suffering because of the gospel, God granted you that. They might be thinking, well, I don't want any more gifts, but God is saying, no, this is what you need I'm giving you this. Why? Well, because it's sanctifying you. It's going to glorify me. It's going to make you more like my son. But it's also going to produce in you a holiness and a godliness that will not only bring you joy now, but will bring you great reward in the future. And that's just the last part I'd mention, and I'll just mention it quickly. Look at what he says. Four, he says, this finds favor. Grace, if for the sake of consciousness toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there when you sin, you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now again, just because different translations take it, I'll note here, that's a, that's a difficult uh, phrase there to translate. The New American Standards has for if for the sake of conscience towards God. So, so the idea could be that he's saying if for the sake of consciousness of God and of his grace in this situation, if for that sake you obey this, you act this way. Or it could be focused on the individual and saying if for your own conscious sake. In other words, for your own clean conscience you endure under these things. But again, like before, in terms of application it doesn't really make any difference. Each is contained in the other. The idea is, out of one who has received grace, out of the desire to honor and live righteously before him, when you pursue this, it finds favor from God. It finds favor from God. Grace from God. Again, in verse chapter 3, he says, The one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. That is, toward them with his favor. Toward them with his favor. And his ears attend their prayer. He's not silent to their cries of pain and difficulty. He's not silent to their souls reaching out to God for the strength to endure what they cannot endure. He's not silent. He's not unconcerned. He'll say in chapter 5, He cares for you. His ears attend their prayer. 
but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. But his grace is towards those who do right. His favor is with them. His goodness is toward them. He has not abandoned them. He's not abandoned you. He's there to uphold you, to hear your prayers, to sustain you in all that he has given to you. Now, who knows the duration or the intensity of the trial? No one knows, but it will not exceed the grace and the goodness of God to his children. So motivation one is because of the grace that is received from God in our patient endurance of the injustice. But it's also because of the future reward. The future reward. He mentions that later, earlier in Ephesians and Colossians. Let me just read one verse for you. You don't have to turn there. But he says in verse 6, or chapter 6, with goodwill, render service to the Lord as to men and not, and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. There's no act of obedience to Christ that will not receive its reward in the end. In the end. And it's that kind of hope that allows us to bear witness to the gospel And that makes other people notice and ask the reason for the hope that is within us. That's why Paul could say, I don't consider the suffering of this world worthy to be compared with the glories that are to come. And that's what enables us to live in this situation. So we glorify God in this world when we live obediently in the fear of God and reverence those God has put in authority over us. Whether you're in the workplace, whether you're in an organization, we'll see later whether you're in the home or in the government, under an unrighteous government. That's how we honor God, and it's only a fruit of the gospel and of the grace in our lives. Let me pray, and then maybe we could have one closing hymn. Do we have a verse? Yes? Okay. Let me pray, and his mic comes up, and then we'll sing just maybe one verse of him. Father, thank you for your instruction and your grace, and your instructions are not easy. Your commands are not easy, particularly to us who are in the flesh. That is, who, though redeemed, though regenerate, though a new man in Christ, though indwelt by the Holy Spirit in union with Christ, though having faith kept and protected by you, Holy Spirit, and your work in us, We yet feel the temptations and the urges of our fallenness. And in that, these commands become difficult. But you enable us. And so help us to do it. And help us to do it not with a a slavish, dour kind of spiritual attitude, but with the joy in Christ. May we be motivated by the joy of grace, by the confidence of your love to us as your children, and by the hope that we have in your promises, in your word. We pray these things to the end that you might be glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen.